Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science for another week. This is, of course, 30 minutes of science all around Australia, and um, we're very lucky to have with us um, today, well, both Chris and Stu. Hello. Hello. Hi. My name's Claire, of course, and um, this week on the show, I believe we have we have a guest in the studio. Well, maybe not actually in the studio, but hey, I'm not in the studio either, so... <laughs> in the virtual studio, Stu. Yeah. The world is the world is a virtual studio these days. Look, you've probably heard of uh, a drug called ivermectin, which mm. has been been getting in the news and getting a lot of people excited over the past eighteen months or so as a potential treatment for COVID nineteen. And you know, a lot of people initially said, "Why would this even work? It's a it's a worming treatment." Yeah. I think we covered it last year in we one, did. like in the early days of its emergence as a popular drug. Yeah, we did. And um, so, look, there, you know, there's a lot of people testing it and doing research on it and doing trials on it. And a lot of people putting those trials together in, turns out, one of the biggest trials in the whole ivermectin as a COVID treatment has some major problems and I spoke to Gideon Meyerowitz Katz from the University of Wollongong about what those problems actually are and why one of the biggest trials is uh, has a big question mark hanging over it at the moment. We do love a follow-up story here on Lost in Science, um, and this is definitely a good one to follow up on. Great. Well, how about you, Chris? Do you have a follow-up story? Do you have a um, do you have a new story for us today? I- Look, it's, it's not exactly new. Um, I'm just basically following in Stuart's coattails here. Um, I am also doing a COVID story. Oh, and I'm also doing a story relating to Gideon Meyerowitz's cats. Wow. We, yeah. I mean, he should be in the intro. Kick you yeah, both out. Where's yeah, Gideon? Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, this is about a study that he's involved in. Now, um, you might have noticed recently there have been quite a few um, protests around the country. Um, people not happy with lockdown. Yeah. Yes, we have noticed it's, that. It's, it's kind of like protesting an earthquake, though, isn't it? It's a natural disaster. What are you protesting about? Well, are they protesting the, the virus? Are they protesting the measures to to combat the virus? Entirely depends who you ask, I think. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There are a lot of kind of strange viewpoints out there and a lot of conspiracy theories in that kind of field. But there is also a lot of legitimate concern about lockdowns and... You know, the harm that lockdowns themselves could do, because none of us enjoy being in this situation, um, virus or no virus. And there is a lot of expectation that it's not going to be great for our collective health. So there's a recent study that has been published trying to analyse the health impact of these lockdowns and trying to find out, yeah, whether they're worse than the pandemic itself. Um, are they justified? And that's kind of one of the big burning questions. Um, spoiler alert, they're not worse than the virus. It is very good to know and great to get some science behind that. Doesn't mean they're completely harmless, but we'll get into that as well. 
Excellent. Well, it sounds like we're having a bit of a uh, COVID roundup this week on um, Lost in Science. So on with the show. Probably people have been hearing a lot about medical interventions to help stop the COVID-19 pandemic that has been uh, ravaging the entire world in the last uh, 18 months. And a lot of people were looking for treatments for the illness and obviously the vaccines we've heard a lot more about in recent months. But one of the potential treatments was a drug called ivermectin. And there has been a lot of debate about whether it's effective and a lot of apparent research going on. But I'm joined on the show this week by Gideon Meyerowitz-Katz from the University of Wollongong. He's an epidemiologist and I just wanted to bring him on to Lost in Science to talk a little bit about ivermectin and some of the issues associated with it, uh, including uh, a big elephant in the room. But I'll, I'll get onto that. Thanks for joining us on the show, Gideon. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. So first of all, I guess we should discuss quickly what ivermectin is. What, where did it come from? So ivermectin is an anti-parasitic uh, medication that's commonly used to treat various forms of uh, worms, essentially. Uh, it's used both in humans and veterinary scenarios. So it's used mostly in Australia uh, for sheep and dogs, although it is also used for humans. And it rose to prominence originally because of an Australian study that showed some activity from ivermectin against COVID-19 in some cells in petri dishes. But it, it's, it really hit the big time because of the Surgisphere fraud. So Surgisphere was um, a, a fake database, probably fake. We, we're still not sure exactly what it was, but it was the scientific um, fraud that happened last year where a group of people published studies claiming to have access to this database that turned out not to exist. And one of the studies that they published showed a benefit for ivermectin, a huge mortality benefit for ivermectin. The study was later deleted, retracted. In between the time when it was published online and when, and when it was taken down, um, it was picked up by a lot of countries in the developing world because ivermectin is a very commonly used antiparasitic drug in, in countries where they don't have sufficient money to pay for more expensive medications and so it was given to hundreds of millions of people and and it kind of rose to prominence because of that Um, and since then there have been many more studies conducted uh but but that's kind of where it came from and and it was sort of um it's it's been sort of championed by a whole lot of people around the world uh as you know oh we don't need to be worried about the vaccine we've got this drug that can treat uh COVID-19 so it kind of did get a lot of airtime in a lot of uh, social media and even, uh, you know, print media, TV, all that sort of stuff, radio, it got got mentioned a lot. I mean, it would be great if there was a drug that could treat the illness itself, treat the symptoms and the, uh, you know, the effect of the virus. Um, And so I can see why people would be excited. You mentioned that a lot of research was going on and a lot of that research was small scale studies from all over different parts of the world. And when we have those kind of Uh, small-scale studies, what people can do is put them all together and see if there's an overall trend. And this is what has been happening throughout the throughout the pandemic. And some of those meta-analyses, which is what they're called, did seem to show a big effect for ivermectin on 
on treatment of COVID-19. But there was some flaws in that. Do you want to sort of go into what those flaws might be? Yeah, so, so the way this sort of study works, you know, you do a systematic review, which means you go out to the literature as a whole, you search every study out um, that you can find on a specific treatment or medication. Um, so in this case, you find every trial where people have um, looked at ivermectin for COVID-19, you aggregate them together in a statistical model, which is the meta-analytic part of that, of that process. And you come up with a combined estimate that is greater than the sum of its parts, gives you a really good idea of just how effective the medicine is. Um, and this is considered the gold standard in research, right? It's, it's the highest level of evidence. Uh, the problem with that sort of research is if you have um, a large trial that has a very large um, benefit or detriment. So if you, if you have one fairly big trial that shows a huge benefit when the other trials don't, that has a big impact on the model. Uh, and in this case, the, the biggest trial of ivermectin um, to date, uh, there are bigger trials that are ongoing and, and some of them will be published shortly, but the, the biggest so far um, uh, appears to be either potentially or, well, it is potentially entirely fraudulent. It's, it's hard to know. Um, and we're not certain, but it does appear to be what is potentially one of the one of the bigger cases of scientific fraud. Um, I mean, ever or the most impactful, if not the biggest. So how was this picked up that there was that there was potentially a scientific fraud going on in this? So this wasn't published. This was a preprint. And that, ah, okay. in, in some ways, I think uh, doesn't really matter because I this has led me to look at the Ivermectin literature as a whole and some of the published articles on ivermectin are also very low quality and have numbers that are impossible in their in their results i looked at this study myself before the the potential fraud was identified um and i said this study is at high risk of bias it's very low quality has lots of issues i didn't notice anything seriously off about it and i should say this study um was conducted in egypt it showed a 90 percent mortality benefit for ivermectin so uh, taking ivermectin, if the study had, was, is true, show, uh, reduces your risk of death from COVID by 90%, which is massive. So to give you an idea of how big that, that benefit is, um, the last time that we found a benefit like that for a viral infection was the treatment of AIDS by anti, antiretrovirals in the late 80s. So it's, it's, it's enormous, truly staggering. Um, and so the, a, a master's student, called Jack Lawrence in the United Kingdom. Uh, he, was, he was kind of given this preprint as an exercise in one of his classes to read over and, and critically appraise. And he's an amazing guy. I've been talking to him back and forth. And he basically went to his lecturer and said, do you realize that the entire introduction is plagiarized? And the lecturer said, no, what are you talking about? I, I just wanted you to, to critically appraise this, to, to have a look and, and see what flaws there might have been in the study. And, and Jack was like, no, no, the whole methods, the whole introduction is plagiarized and much of the methods is also plagiarized. And then being a, a pedant, like, or like the best of us, um, <laughs> pedants are the best people. He went and had a look at the data file. The authors had uploaded their data online and you, it requires you to pay $10 US and make sure you've got an antivirus software on your computer because the site they were hosting it on is pretty dodgy. So you don't get any malware, but you can download the data file. And I did this myself. And then he, it's locked, but he figured out the password, which is one, two, three, four. <laughs> and the moment you look at the data, it becomes glaringly obvious that this is not data 
that is consistent with a real trial conducted on real people. Um, it's possible that the authors uploaded what is not data for their trial, and that that remains kind of the potential explanation for all of this. But basically, that the data that is uploaded um, there or that they said was the data from their trial is not consistent with a real randomized trial. So some of the things that you see in this, uh, they have repeating segments where the same patients, like identical patients are copied on different lines in Excel. Um, this, the study was meant to start on the 8th of June, but they have people in that data file who, who were recruited and died before the 8th of June, which for a randomized trial is just impossible. So there's all sorts of, of kind of glaring issues there. So, so that, but the data that is uploaded is reflected in the results they've put into their paper as well. So it it is the same data that they've used. So there are, so there are differences, which is likely because the data file that they uploaded was not sufficiently good quality to actually analyze. So that a lot of it is kind of entered in as text rather than numbers. It's got lots of uh, weird mistakes. Like instead of having 1.0, you'll have enter uh, like four spaces, then a 1.0 the letter, which means that potentially the reason why it doesn't match the results is simply because you can't analyze it in its current form, which is also not a great, great sign. But even even without the data that they uploaded, there are other issues with the study. So they report confidence intervals and and standard deviations um, that are, I mean, they're not numerically impossible, but they imply that every single one of their patients uh, had a length of stay, so stayed in hospital, either 9, 10, or 25 days. So no value in between 9, 10, and 25, which... I mean, in theory, that that is a possible distribution, but it is so wildly unlikely that you would never see it in a, in a real trial. So some of that can be put down to errors, but generally speaking, uh, and this is what the, uh, the experts in data fraud have said, um, who have looked at this trial, generally speaking with this sort of thing, um, one or two errors is, is a mistake. Hundreds of errors is probably a, bit, is a much bigger issue. And this has many mentioned before that it's it hasn't been published yet, so it hasn't technically gone through a peer review process of people looking at it, but it has been looked at by lots and lots of people. Yes, so this is part of the problem. It had it had a really outsized impact on the literature because it was such a big study and had such a, a large benefit that what, it essentially skewed the whole literature in favor of ivermectin. If you, if you exclude this study, most of these meta-analyses that found very large benefits for ivermectin, uh, if once you get rid of this study, it, it completely changes the landscape of the results. And the benefit from ivermectin relies on, only on one or two other much smaller, much less beneficial studies. It, it's, it's kind of this snowball effect where a single study can have a huge impact on the literature as a whole. People have been uh, citing this study in their studies you know if someone else analyzes their study then that comes up again and yeah i can see how that's a a, a, like you say a snowball effect it's very difficult to stop once that has started rolling yeah exactly and part of the issue is that so much of the ivermectin literature really is based on these kind of small not very well done pieces of research so having one big study that shows such a huge benefit really changes the literature as a whole i think 
at this point, the only thing we can really do is wait for big studies. So there are several very large studies that are coming out in the near future. This is this is the challenge that one potentially fraudulent study had such a huge impact. It got hundreds, if not thousands of people across the world treated with ivermectin in and of itself. It was read 130,000 times before it was pulled down from the website. So it's been retracted, but before it was pulled down from the preprint. And, and it impacted all of these meta-analyses and drove the positive findings for mortality that everyone has seen. It has really changed the way people have been treating people with COVID across the world, particularly in developing countries. And almost certainly in a negative way, if the if the results aren't what they first appeared to be. It's a bit of a sad state for science, I have to say, because this should not be a master's student in biomedical science being given a paper to review in, in his class, you know, this should be, there should be a dedicated university faculty that's looking into these things and trying to determine whether uh, the studies are correct or not. There should be researchers from across the globe trying to figure out if things are true or not, but there aren't. This, this was left to an unpaid volunteer and it shouldn't have been. And that is to the detriment of us all. Look, I think we'll have to wrap it up there. I just want to thank you for joining us on Lost in Science, uh, Gideon Meyerowitz-Katz from the University of Wollongong. Thanks for your insight into this issue. We'll stay tuned for more studies on ivermectin. But in the meantime, I guess we have got vaccines now. So Vaccines are the best. a warning that the following story does contain discussions of uh, mental health problems and suicide so if this is uh, something that concerns you please reach out for support there is lifelines number is 131144 or beyond blue it's 1300 okay yes so you are listening to lost in science and like a lot of the country we have been locked down lately and yeah, as a result, you know, getting a bit over all these lockdowns, I think most of us are. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, yeah, it's a bit over it. Sort of, yeah. um, what, number four? Number, Eight? Number five for 63? Melbourne. 63? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, there is, there's been a bit over it and then there is being kind of really sort of, I don't know, harmed by it, I suppose you could say. And there have been a lot of concerns since the start of the pandemic and this kind of lockdown process that there, um, that lockdowns themselves could be more harmful than the virus are trying to combat, particularly when it comes to areas like mental health and those other sort of impact related impacts. But there are quite a few possible health impacts that they could be having. And you sometimes hear critics of lockdowns say that the cure is worse than the disease. Um, the cure is worse than the disease, surprisingly hard to say. Now, the good news is that some of these harms have not actually come about. Um, I just want to cut straight to the chase there. Uh, there were very much concerns, I think, in the early days that there might be, say, a epidemic of suicides due to the mental health mm. impact of lockdowns. And that is kind of one of the big worries we've had going in. And it's kind of, I suppose, something that everyone's concerned about and kind of a calculated risk um, you know, there is a, a known risk in the virus and you have to say, well, let's hope that the lockdowns don't cause more problems. This 
has question has been examined in a new study published in BMJ Global Health by some researchers from Australia and overseas, including, as I mentioned, in the introduction, Gideon Meyerowitz Katz. And they tried to look at the overall health impact of lockdowns, um, but they focused primarily on deaths, mortality data from the various countries, and to see whether lockdowns were associated with uh, high mortality. Essentially, what they looked at was the, the rate of deaths that you saw in various countries and whether there was an excess of deaths due to the pandemic or due to the lockdowns themselves. And now this isn't always straightforward because there's it's a big world and there's a lot of variety in what mm. has happened. But the thing is that it's it's also it is tricky because um, you're also trying to extract the impact of of the lockdown and various other effects. And you have some countries like um, a couple to compare are UK and Sweden, for instance, which have had quite different policy approaches mm. to COVID, but kind of similar outcomes in terms of the effect of the virus. And, you know, you can put that down to, I guess, government efficiency or people's response to things, but it's really hard to extract from that any meaningful numbers. So kind of you have to look at the extremes in this question. And Australia actually features in this. You have countries like Australia and New Zealand, which had uh, some strong lockdowns, as we know, um, and successfully contained COVID-19. In countries like Australia and New Zealand, you did not see uh, high mortality, essentially. You did not see the excess deaths that you might do if the lockdowns themselves were causing, uh, causing problems. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at countries that had um, few restrictions but had a lot of COVID in them, um, countries like Brazil and Russia, um, certain parts of the US at times, there was much greater excess deaths. You could easily measure the signal of the excess deaths due to the pandemic. And so this is kind of the most important figure they were, that they found was that the lockdowns themselves don't cause uh, don't cause more deaths. In fact, there are some ways that they can actually reduce some deaths. Um, if obviously if people are are getting out of the house, there's not going to be as yeah. many car accidents. There is the annual flu outbreaks have been mm-hmm. lessened by a lot, and that you know that's flu is not an insignificant part of the overall health picture every year. So there are some ways the lockdowns can um, also contribute indirectly to other um, reductions in death. But the big question, which was, does it increase the deaths? No, it does not appear to increase the deaths. And this is backed up by some other recent data that has been released. Um, shortly after this study came out, there was a the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare released some of their data. They've been doing a suicide and self-harm monitoring um, project. It's an annual thing that they do. And they put out a report specifically looking at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they found essentially that there was not a rise um, in suicide rates across the country in Australia, which is heartening news. It's... um. It's also similar to what the Victorian coroner found last year as well and published that uh, at the end of last year that there was no uh, no change in, in the suicide rate in Victoria over the course of the uh, the lockdown as well. Yeah. I mean, this, this tells part of the picture, but I guess it doesn't tell the whole picture in terms of mental health. You still, you know, I've heard it reported that there's a huge increase in anxiety and depression and, you know, feelings of isolation. Does the study account for that part of the picture? Well, well, first of all, I'll look at what the the 
Australian Institute of Health and Welfare stuff came out with because they did an, uh, analyse those impacts. And you're absolutely right. There have been... It is not all just about suicide. I mean, when I brought that up, that was primarily looking at the, the headline figure of um, deaths and mortality, which is one of the big measures that we use in medicine um, because it's kind of an objective, easy thing to measure. But you're absolutely right. There are other... It is Mental health is much more than that. And uh, the AIHW has been uh, tracking other aspects they've been looking at things like calls to helplines which have gone up and they've been doing tracking surveys of people's mental health as well which have shown certainly an increase in depression and anxiety you know and they're putting this down to factors like loneliness as you said isolation uh job loss is another big factor and that leads to stress which was a big kind of predictor of people um being in psychological distress so, yeah, absolutely, there has been a big um, impact, psychological impact and mental health impact of the of the pandemic, um, sorry, of the lockdowns. The study that was published in the BMJ Global Health does address this, but as they point out, it is really difficult to extract the effect of lockdowns from the effect of the pandemic itself. So, yeah, people will feel certainly anxiety if they are worried about their job, they're worried about, uh, yeah, their economic situation, but also feel anxiety if there is a deadly virus circulating mm. in the community. And it's very hard to separate the this impact out. And that's one mm. of the things I found with a lot of the actual other effects when you try to measure other kind of negative impacts of, of the lockdowns and the pandemic. So another one that is been kind of an interesting factor that people have looked at is the use of health services. Things like uh, people going to put into emergency rooms where they've got things like, you know, heart attack or a stroke or those sort of things, or just general use of health services. So this is something that there has been around the world, people have noticed an, an impact on, on that. And whether this is due to lockdowns or not, you know, there's been a lot of kind of messaging trying to put out the saying, still look after your health, but there's also, that's countered by, sort of restrictions on on what you can do in terms of um, seeing doctors and um, who's allowed to go in. But there's also other factors as well that impact that. Like, you know, if if there is a a COVID outbreak in your community, you might be afraid of going to a hospital where there may be people with with the disease. Or the hospital itself may have problems with its services. Like, you know, it may be overwhelmed with COVID patients. And that may not be because of the lockdown, but because of other impacts due to the pandemic. So the study basically concluded that a lot of this stuff, which you can... Um, hypothesize as impacts, negative impacts of lockdowns, you cannot actually prove that they cause those. Mm. Um, and it is really hard to separate those things out. And essentially you are looked at um, as, you know, going back to where we started with is looking at countries that have successfully controlled the virus, like Australia and New Zealand, um, like, um, you know, South Korea and uh, Thailand at various stages. I know they're not doing so well at the moment. And looking at how those countries have fared compared to countries that have not done as well with the virus. And it does seem from that that the virus has had um, kind of a much bigger impact on people's health and well-being in many ways than the lockdowns themselves. So, look, the conclusion isn't that lockdowns are are all great and fine and harmless. Absolutely, they're not. Um, We can all agree with that. But the important thing is to remember is that um, COVID-19 pandemic itself is causing a lot of problems and that it is kind of thing we have to kind of keep our eye on the game. We have to try and do what we can to end the pandemic, which I guess we come back to the vaccination messages and those sort of things, but also cooperate, you know, cooperating with the lockdowns and doing what we can to minimise the spread and make sure that we are not under these conditions longer than we need to be. If anything in this story has affected you, please uh, reach out. Uh, Lifeline, again, the number is 131114. 
and Beyond Blue is one three hundred double two four six three six. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight.gmail.com. We are Lost in Science 1 on Twitter or on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just join us again next week when we get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.